seated. As you're taking your seats, let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to our text this morning. You can find it in uh, Matthew's Gospel on page 823. We're in Matthew 17, beginning in a short little passage uh, this morning, verses 22 uh, to 27. As you're turning there, I do want to say uh, it was wonderful to be away last week. I had an annual uh, week of study leave that includes uh, a week off on Sunday, so I don't have to prepare a sermon that week. So uh, it was wonderful to be away. I missed you all. Uh, I'm grateful to have uh, Jim and fill the pulpit morning and evening. Uh, it makes being away a little bit easier uh, to know uh, he's here and uh, preaching. I do want to invite you because he was too embarrassed to come back tonight for the installation service. Uh, it's a wonderful event in the life of our church uh, to install him as an associate pastor called by y'all, not by the session or by me, called by the congregation. He is uh, fully uh, your and our pastor. So I hope you can all come back this evening at six o'clock uh, for a special time of uh, installation service tonight. Uh, let me go ahead and read our passage, uh, verses 22 down to 27. We'll see some familiar themes uh, and a new theme uh, that we will learn uh, in the life of Jesus as he has uh, shown his followers who he is, the Christ who must die, and he, began, he begins now his descent, both literal and figurative, uh, down to Jerusalem, down to the cross, uh, and down to the tomb. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, to not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself." The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Do you join me in prayer? Our Lord, this morning we ask that you would give us eyes of faith. That you would give us eyes of faith to see and lay hold of Christ. The one who was shown before our eyes in this text uh, as one that came to be humiliated. Who came to endure. Who came to suffer. We would see his path of humiliation and suffering, and it would bring us great joy. For in it is the gospel news that he has gone before us, that he has endured on our behalf, that he has borne the shame that we so deserve, that we might be given life and adoption forever and ever. Lord, speak to us these words of hope and of comfort, that we too might believe and follow that same path. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I knew I was growing old when my kids started using words that I didn't know what they were talking about. (laughs) It might not seem that old to you, but they start throwing around slang words in the house, and I have no idea what they mean. And I have to either do a Google search, 
which is a true dad move, right? To try to figure out what their kids are talking about. Or just ask them, right, to explain or ask my wife. Maybe she's figured it out. And one of those words you may have heard thrown around today is the word cringe. Now, you know what that word means, right? Something awkward happens and you sort of cringe. But the kids use it as an adjective, right? They describe a, a person or a thing or especially an event as, oh, that is so cringe. And when they say something is cringe, it means they want to get away from it as fast as possible, right? They want to turn off the, the TV. They want to leave the room. They definitely want dad to stop talking about slang words in church, right? <laughs> it is cringe. Maybe we could go a layer deeper uh, and say a word that maybe we're more, more used to is something's embarrassing, right? Something sort of, uh, it makes us cringe inside, right? And we go to bed at night and we're thinking, man, I can't believe I did that. That was so embarrassing, right? I thought he was waving at me, but he was waving at the person behind me, right? <laughs> I had a jelly stain on my tie all day, and I didn't see it until I went home that night, right? Those are embarrassing things. But there's another, there's a deeper layer, right? From cringe to embarrassing, we could go to that layer of humiliating. Humiliating is, it's kind of all the way deep as to who we are. It's not just we had sustain on our tie and we didn't know about it. It's, It's somehow related to our shame. It's something deeply personal, We can't quite escape it, that humiliation. It's not only something we've done that's embarrassing. It's almost, in a sense, who we are. When the Bible talks about this concept of humiliation, it speaks of a a low status, a low place, a low condition. Big words like abasement or dishonor. The question, when somebody is humiliated is how can they endure that? How can they put up with it? How can they keep going? How can they show their face in that room or amongst that people again when they've been so humiliated? How can they endure it? If our teens can't even endure a cringe-worthy moment, how can we endure humiliation? And even more than that, how can Christ our Savior endure the greatest humiliation imaginable. What I'm going to show you in these two little, these two connected accounts, the foretelling of his death and paying the temple tax, is that both of these are humiliating for Jesus. But he endures humiliation in both of these cases by entrusting himself to the care of someone else. And that someone else, of course, is God his Father. To summarize it, Jesus endured humiliation by entrusting himself to the care of God. That's how he endured humiliation. And that is great news for us. And we're going to see later, that's how we also endure, is by entrusting ourselves to God. I want to show you the two ways that happens. Uh, in our text, as if the title, it happens in death and taxes. You've heard the phrase, right? There's nothing certain in life but death and taxes. Here's your reminder. Tax season is here, right? <laughs> Tax day is coming up, and a death day may not be coming up, but it is true and is real for all of us. It's certain in life that everyone will pay taxes and endure death, except for Jesus. If there's anyone who's exempt from death, it's the perfect one, right? And we're going to see in a moment, he's also exempt from paying taxes, and yet he endures both of those, both death and taxes, by entrusting himself to God. 
Let's look at each of those. First, he endures in a big way in death. Then we're going to see he endures in kind of a relatively smaller way in taxes. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus endures even death itself. So look how the the passage begins. Matthew tells us they were gathering in Galilee. So there's Jesus and the disciples. Galilee, right around the Sea of Galilee up in the north. That's where we followed Jesus for multiple chapters. He's going off. He's going up to the Mediterranean Sea and Siren Tidon. He's going up to Caesarea Philippi. He's going across the sea to the Decapolis. All this stuff's happening up north. And now they're gathering together. This is sort of like you're, you're getting together to go on a road trip, right? And everybody's showing up at the meeting point, and you're going to head somewhere. And we're going to see in a couple chapters where they're headed. Chapter 19, verse 1, is down to Judea and down to Jerusalem. This is the beginning of the end of the northern ministry of Jesus. We're not going to see him back up here anymore. This is the final season. This is the final time before he heads down to Jerusalem. And so again, he tells them of the humiliation that he must endure. He opens his mouth and he speaks, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. So if humiliation is a low status or condition, we understand that Jesus begins in a pretty high place, right? For he to be so humiliated, he begins in a high place, which is he calls himself the son of man, a title of power, of glory, of the fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel. He will come in force, in strength to usher in the kingdom. And yet here he's delivered. He's delivered, the text says, into the hands of men. The son of man is a position of, of, of power, and yet the powerful one is passively given over into the hands of someone else. The idea here of delivered, it means he is the one who is the recipient of the action. He's not the one doing it, right? It's like when Amazon brings the package to your house and they deliver it, and you see them out there and you just sit on your couch and you don't move, right? And they bring it, they put it in front of your door and they take a picture, And they email it to you, and then it's all there. Now you can go, once they leave, you don't have to talk to them, you don't get your package, right? You don't do anything. It's all being done. So for Jesus, he uses this word that he is the one who is delivered. Now, who delivers him? That is a key question. Because we turn a couple chapters later to a man named Judas, who was probably here at this very moment. And in Matthew 26, he goes to the religious leaders and he asks them a question. He says, what will you give me if I deliver him? Deliverance in the hands of Judas means betrayal. I mean, I wonder if you've ever been betrayed, really betrayed. Someone's broken their word to you. Uh, you have had a friend go behind your back and do something else. It is humiliating, isn't it? And that the one who is who rules the world, the king of the universe, that he would subject himself to someone betraying him is the step downward in his humiliation. Because he's not, what is he delivered into human hands that they might do? Verse 23, that they would kill him. He is betrayed into the hands of those who will kill him. This is the second time Jesus will give such an explicit statement. He'll do it one more time chapter 20, and we will see there that this this killing will be done by crucifixion. We don't quite know that yet. We've had some hints, but we haven't 
heard that official news yet. And do you remember a couple of weeks ago when Jesus first foretold his death and how Peter responded to that? He said, no way. That's not happening, Jesus, not to you. He pulled him aside and he rebuked him. He wasn't even going to believe that. But look how the, the disciples respond this time around. And they were greatly distressed. I think they, they're starting to get it now. They're distressed because he's going to die. Now, they don't seem to have realized the third part of the prophecy, delivered, killed, and then raised from the dead. They're sort of missing that part, or else they would be distressed and also rejoicing. You see, Jesus endures this humiliation of betrayal and death by trusting God his Father. He entrusts himself. He gives over the control and the trust to his Father that God might raise him up on the third day. You see, again, a passive verb. Jesus is not the one doing the resurrection. No, he's dead. God, his father, raises him from the dead. You see, we find that word delivered again in the New Testament. This time, not on lips of Judas, but some attributed to God. We read in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. Jesus endured the humiliation of the tomb, trusting that God would deliver him up. He trusted the words in Psalm 16, where the psalmist says and prophesies, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is to death, or let your Holy One see corruption. How was he able to submit himself to betrayal at the hands of Judas. Because in doing so, he was entrusting himself to the care of God his Father. Jesus endures humiliation, the humiliation of betrayal and murder, because he entrusts himself to the care of his Father. I had a good friend a few years ago uh, going in to see the doctor, uh, and he was scheduled for a triple bypass open-heart surgery which if you've ever done that, if you had a loved one endure that, that's, it's quite a surgery. All right, and they, they stop the heart so they can work on it, and they put the patient on a, a heart and lung machine that does all the work for him. It's a, it's a scary proposition, right? It's the patient that your life's sort of going to be shut off and ended for this moment, and you are trusting the doctor and God to bring you back out. My friend looked at at the doctor, he kind of grabbed him right before the surgery began. And he said, Doc, we are Christians and we trust God and we are putting our life in your hands. Through God to work miraculously to bring him back out. This is Jesus submitting to the will of his father, putting his life in his hands. That's coming. That death is coming. But so far, it's only a foretelling. It's only a prophecy of the death. I want you to see what happens on the way there, uh, on the way to uh, back to Jerusalem, as Jesus continues on a downward path. We see, secondly, in this text, he endures not only in big ways and death, he endures in small ways, right? In ways like taxes in verses 24 to 27. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in the 
when Jesus tells his followers to take up your cross and follow me, that this is a grand pronouncement, but it's also something that happens every day in small and, and simple ways in the life of a Christian. And it's, it's sort of as if Jesus is saying, you've taken up your cross and follow me. Now it's time to take out your wallet and follow me, right? Let's go, let's go to the small ways. And the, in, the, the humiliation in these verses that Jesus endures is not death, it's paying taxes. Look at how the scene begins uh, in verse 24. They come to Capernaum, also north in the region of Galilee. And the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and asked, does your teacher not uh, pay the tax. If you want to read more about temple taxation in the ancient Near East, you can go to Exodus 30, verses 11 and following. We'll describe this very tax. This is that the Jewish men were required to pay this two drachma ta- tax annually. They're gathering to go to the Passover feast. The leaders and the tax collectors are wondering, is Jesus ever going to actually pay this tax? Doesn't seem like they're quite bold enough to ask Jesus, and so they ask Peter instead. What's up with your boy? Why isn't he paying the tax, right? Peter doesn't really give them an answer. He just confirms, verse 25, yes, he doesn't pay the tax. Scene ends. They go inside the house. Scene two begins with Jesus initiating towards Peter. Peter, essentially, do you know why I don't pay the tax? And he teaches through a parable uh, about taxing. Now, this is kind of confusing because the, the drachma tax is a religious tax. It is instituted not by the Roman government, right? It's the Jewish leaders for Jewish people, and it's a religious tax, right? It goes to the upkeep of the temple. But the metaphor that Jesus gives, the parable, is of a civil tax, of a king taxing servants, a people, and maybe even his own sons. So don't get confused the, the big picture is religious tax. The parable is a civil tax to teach us back about this religious tax, all right? So the question that Jesus has for Peter is verse, what is that, verse 25. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? The question is kings tax people in their kingdom. Do they tax their own sons is the question to Peter. And the answer for Peter is no. As Jesus tells us the point. That means the sons of the king are free from paying the taxes. Does that make sense? This is sort of uh, unique in monarchy, right? Now, in the U.S., right, our political leaders are supposed to pay their taxes, including the president, right? We're all supposed to pay our taxes. Whether they do or not is a, a whole other thing, right? You're supposed to pay your taxes. What about... Princes who are sons of the king. No, 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 they don't, they don't pay tax. Everybody else pays tax, but not the princes. That's the civil. Go back to the, cer- the, the, the religious and the ceremonial that Jesus is talking about. What's the significance? Every Jewish male pays taxes to God to, for the upkeep of God's house, but Jesus doesn't pay. Put those two together, what does that mean? Jesus is the son of God. He is claiming a massive claim of his own divinity, his own sonship, by not paying taxes. Sort of a fascinating way to make the point. He could have given lots of other reasons. He could have said, I don't have the money to pay the taxes. He could have said, I'm a a rabbi, religious leader. I don't need to pay that same tax. But he makes an audacious claim 
He's the son of God, and the son of God is free from paying this religious tax. But, verse 27, he will pay the tax. I want you to see how humiliating this is. This is the prince when the tax collector shows up from the king going and getting in line with all the regular people, with all the poor people, with all the middle class people, with the wealthy people, pulling out this sort of benign tax just like everybody else waiting in that line. And how humiliating that is for the prince to stand in line with the people to pay taxes to the king. Why does Jesus do this? He tells us in verse 27, however, not to give offense. We've already read that Jesus is an offense. He will be put to death because he is so offensive to the religious leaders. And yet, in this moment, in this decision, in this tax, he is aiming to not give offense. We're going to come back to this in a moment, how this helps us understand when and when we should try or try not to give offense offense, but we recognize here that for Jesus, there's something more important than his own right at the moment as the son of God to not pay his taxes. And just like in the first account, just like in the first two verses, he is doing this by entrusting himself to God. He is trusting God in verse 27 to provide the tax for him. Now, this isn't as big as the resurrection, but it's still significant. He gives this strange instruction. How are we going to get this, these two drachmas to pay the tax, right? Well, Peter, go fishing <laughs> and catch a fish. And in the mouth of the fish will be a shekel. That's like four drachmas, okay? So he could pay the tax for Jesus and somebody else if he wants to. Presumably this happens. We don't, we don't know. We don't follow the story with Peter going fishing. But if Jesus says it, then we're probably going to believe that it actually happens. So God provides miraculously. As Jesus submits himself to humiliation in this world, God miraculously provides for him. Both in his resurrection from the dead and in paying his taxes. God cares for his very son as he endures humiliation, big and small. Jesus endures by entrusting himself to the care of God. I want you to see that in these actions is the very pattern of the gospel itself. That Jesus as the one who comes from on high, who doesn't need to die, doesn't need to pay taxes, but does so anyway, enduring humiliation, in order that God might miraculously give him life, is the very pattern of the gospel. We read in Hebrews chapter 8, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The Bible describes the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, as coming down into this world and being humiliated. We read further in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Let us run with endurance 
the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That he is humiliated, and in his humiliation, he is enduring the shame that humanity throws at him, but is now vindicated and sits at the right hand of the throne of God. How does that, how does Jesus doing all of that have any good news for us? The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. If he did not endure that humiliation, there would be no wounds to heal us. There would be no blood to wash us clean. If the Son of God insisted upon his rights in this world, we would have no hope. He endured humiliation so that we are are healed. I want you to think for a moment about the most humiliating thing you might go through. Let me tell you what the Bible tells us that it would be. And that is to be called to stand before the holy God of the universe clothed in nothing but our own sin. Claiming nothing but our own good works or the lack of them. And standing before a righteous and holy judge, naked. And that Jesus, as he endured that condemnation, as he endured that humiliation, grants us the white robes to cover us on that day. That the shame we experience in front of one another is nothing compared to humiliation before the God of the universe. And yet, by faith, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. By faith, we are washed clean. And I invite you to come this morning. To come to this Savior. To come in this hope. To come and believe the one who endured on your behalf and come to believe the one who entrusted himself to God on your behalf, who endured your humiliation because of sin, that you too might be healed. You see, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going all the way down, all the way to the cross, and all the way to the tomb to endure everything. And what he's calling us is to trust in him, to believe upon him and be healed, and then to follow him on that same path. We've seen this over and over again. This is the call of discipleship, to, to believe upon Christ and to follow him. That means that we follow him on this same path, that though he heals us, we still follow him in his sorrowing and his suffering. Let me close by giving you two, two implications, two applications from this how we endure, and how we entrust. Number one, I want you to see from these verses that we endure like him humbly. We endure with humility. Look at the very end 
of verse 27. What happens when he pulls the shekel out of the mouth of the fish? He tells Peter, take it, give it to them for me and for yourself. That means I think we can actually reread this. And when Jesus says at the end of verse 26, then the sons are free, he's not only talking about himself. He's talking about all who are adopted children of their heavenly father. That Peter and the other disciples and you and me, we're actually free from paying this ceremonial tax for the upkeep of the temple. And yet, Peter still pays it. It's not as humiliating for Peter to pay, though, is it? I mean, Peter's supposed to pay. But it's humiliating for Jesus, the Son of God, to pay. And so while we might not pay a temple tax today, we are still called to endure with Jesus on this path of humiliation. Back in the book of Hebrews, as we consider his shame, we'll turn to ourselves. We read, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We are called to follow the same path of Jesus. And if Jesus gives up his rights in order that he might endure humiliation, that is the path that we are called to walk on. And when Jesus says he paid the tax in order to not give offense, Paul follows that up and tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, give no offense. We too are to be a people who are ready and willing to surrender our own rights for the sake of the gospel. We already have a Jesus and his gospel that is very offensive. We don't need to add to that, do we? He's offensive because he calls the people of the world unrighteous. And that our good deeds are filthy rags. And there's no hope in our own strength that is offensive to the ears of the world. We don't need to add our bad attitudes, right, to that. We don't need to add our critical spirits to that. We don't need to add our own insisting on our own rights over and over again to that. The gospel itself is offensive enough. It takes humility for Peter to pay this tax. What might Jesus be calling us to pay today? How might he be calling us to humbly endure as we follow after him? That's the first implication as we look at the life of Jesus in these verses is to endure humbly. But I want to show you secondly here that we also entrust ourselves. Just as he entrusted himself to God to raise him from the dead and to bring the tax out of the mouth of the fish, so too do we entrust ourselves to God. 1 Peter 4, 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We're called to do good in this world. And as we do so, we trust God. We trust God with hope. We trust God hopefully, because as Jesus went to the grave and was raised again, so we have that same hope and that same promise for us. God is the one who cares for us. God is the one who defends us. God is the one who vindicates us. And so we can endure entrusting ourselves to him. Many of you had the experience of teaching 
one of your kids to drive or multiple kids to drive and you know when it's finally their turn to drive and you're on the passenger side, you just sit there very calmly letting them drive, right? <laughs> no, of course not. Right? You're freaking out. <laughs> you're fidgety. You're anxious. You're stomping, right? Where are the brakes supposed to be? But there's no brake on the passenger side. I wonder how often we're like this when God's in charge of our lives, right? <laughs> we get all fidgety. God, don't turn here. <laughs> Don't stop. Don't go. This is how you're supposed to do it. We don't entrust ourselves to him, hopefully, do we? You see, the disciples finally got the picture that Jesus was going to die, and they despaired. Now they have to get the second part of the picture, but he's going to be made alive, but they're not there yet. First, they deny he's going to die. Now they die. They think he's going to die. They believe it. They deny he's going to live again. We know he lives again. So we can face even death without the distress that these disciples experience. Because in death, we do not grieve as others who have no hope. We follow Christ on his path of suffering and humiliation with the assurance of things hoped for. Sometimes being a Christian is cringeworthy, right? (laughs) Sometimes being a Christian is embarrassing. Not because we're embarrassed by it, because the world tries to make us embarrassed by it. Sometimes following Christ is even, in the eyes of the world, humiliating. Dear Christian, remember your Savior this morning. Remember that he endured. Remember that he entrusted himself. Remember that God vindicated him. So entrust yourself to God and endure with Christ because he has been raised and he will vindicate us and he will bring every one of his followers with him to glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you know how we struggle to trust you. You know how we we want to We want to hold on and stay in control. You know how easily we get upset when we are made to be embarrassed or humiliated. I pray, oh God, this morning you would give peace to our hearts. You would strengthen our faith to look to Jesus and to him alone. That you would give us eyes of faith that trust you. Trust you to do good. Trust you to do right. Trust you to care for us, to defend us, to vindicate us. Lord, bring us peace, not because our circumstances suddenly get so easy, but bring us peace that even in difficulty and suffering, we have the gift of faith to believe the one who has been humiliated on our behalf and that by his stripes we are healed. 